Well, I, I'm sure that you probably heard the observation that some have made about tombstones. They're always inscribed, or almost always inscribed, with two dates, whenever those dates are known, the day of birth and the day of death. And between those two dates, there's a dash. And that dash on the tombstone represents all of that person's life. Everything that was important to that man or woman, everything they ever did or thought, all of their loves and hates, their hopes and fears, their dreams, their accomplishments, their failures, everything is summed up by that little line. And somehow it doesn't seem quite right that their whole life is represented by something so small. And yes, it's an appropriate reminder of how short our life really is. In the scheme of things, it is just a dash. Or as James puts it, our life is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Those two dates on the tombstone are so important. The one marks the beginning of all which we will do here on this earth, and the other tells of the end of our time when we can act no more. But that dash represents everything which is most important. And we can make a couple of observations about it. That dash is kind of like a blank line that we fill in. We, as we live, we write on it either good things or bad. And it's only on that line and only there that we can meet our Savior. If we trust him, our lives will be shaped by that relationship, and ultimately that dash will bring glory to God. And if we don't come to him, well, then our life will be merely like that short line, thin and stretched, and with ourself by itself, cannot fill, cannot complete, and cannot even keep. For the believer, the line of life represented by that dash, which began at birth, passes through death, and travels forever with God into eternity. And the further you travel on that line, the smaller that dash at the beginning will look, so that all of our trials and tribulations really are but momentary. And for the unbeliever... All of life they will ever know is found there on that small line, and it ends with their death. And for them, too, as eternity stretches out, that dash will seem smaller and smaller until it disappears altogether. There is a beginning to this life and an end to it. And we live in that bracket between, but what happens there matters forever for us. For all Christians, since the days of the apostles, as well as all other people since those days, our bracket, that dash, our lives, it's lived out within the bounds and confines of another greater and more important bracket. We live in the age of the Spirit. Of all the people who have ever lived on earth, we are the most blessed, for the Spirit of God lives in us. And this age of the Spirit is defined by two great events, two points in time, one of which has already happened and the other which is yet to come. 
And our text today describes those two events between which you and I live out our lives, where our dashes are written. So won't you join me, please, once again, in your Bible, so you can follow along on the screens, in Acts chapter 1, where we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11. Acts 1, verses 6 through 11. Now we're going to begin in verse 9, which describes for us that first great event which forms one side of the bracket in which we live. It's where Jesus leaves this world to return to heaven from where he came. And so we read, after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight. Theologically, we refer to this as the ascension. The disciples, uh, those whom Christ had chosen, upon whom the church would be built, saw that ascension. They were the witnesses to that event. And it's an important truth that demonstrates the completion of the first leg of the mission of Christ, which began in his stable in Bethlehem, was lived out in a sinless life, was poised on a cross until death and buried in a borrowed tomb until three days later he came to life again, having conquered death and the grave. He had fulfilled his charge and he could now go home. Jesus had previously told his disciples that he would return to the Father, and here he does just that. And he does so by moving upward. Heaven is always pictured as above us and not by accident. Creation was designed this way. It symbolically represents the truth that God is greater as he is higher than we are. The very heavens themselves declare his glory. It's the most natural thing in the world because God designed it that way for us to look up and to think about God. Jesus said he came down from heaven. He came to us. He became one of us. He lowered himself for us. And he goes back up again to the Father to rejoin him. And he goes back as the first fruit of all those who will follow him because he has made the way for them. The skeptics in the world mock this. <laughs> they want to know, so they say, which way up is? <laughs> Since we live on a globe, how very clever they are. But the Bible is an adult book, and they deliberately ignore this fact. It's written in such a way that even children can begin to grasp some of its truth because of the picture language, and yet honest adults understand and embrace the deeper meaning which it does picture, so that even though we know we live on a globe, we, we still know that God is greater and higher than we are. And we also know that we cannot comprehend all of who he is. And that very real event of Christ going up speak volumes to our hearts. And what else would he do, given the local nature of that event? Of course he went up. And the fact that he was then hidden by a cloud hints at a greater reality uh, of more and higher dimensions, which science has only in recent times began to postulate. 
And as the scientists began to describe these things, they discovered the theologians were already there on those craggy heights before their arrival. Far from an object of mockery, the Bible is a wonder of coherence, truth, and insight that addresses and answers the deepest questions and longings of the human heart. So a Christ ascended. He returned to the Father. That's the first bracket in which we live our lives. And then verses 10 and 11 points to the other bracket, which closes out this earthly time, the next leg of Jesus' mission. It tells of his return. And so we read, they, the chosen disciples upon which Jesus would build his church, were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Well, wouldn't you? <laughs> when suddenly two men, these were angels, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. We here in this building along with countless others across the globe and down through the centuries, wait for that day. With all our hearts, we believe that Jesus Christ is coming again. But even though we believe it, it might be a good thing if from time to time we asked ourselves if it's making any difference in the way we live. It ought to, you know. It really ought to. The declaration of the angels is very clear. It's very precise. The same Jesus who went into heaven, the one who died to pay for our sins, the one who was raised to life, the one declared by power, the power of the resurrection to be the Son of God who was also the Son of Man, that Jesus will come back from heaven. He will come back as he went in the clouds in, in the sky. And, and though only a few saw him when he ascended, the scriptures tell us that every eye will see him when he returns. M maybe every eye will see him because of the pervasiveness of electronic media. Uh, maybe it'll be an event that will go viral in real time. I think it's only speculation, just as the idea about electronic media is speculation, I think he might very well circle the globe as he comes back so that the faithful from every tribe and nation and language will meet him in the air. Whenever it happens, however it happens, Jesus is coming back. And there is both promise and doom in that truth. You see, now is the time to put your trust in him. Now is a time when we can work. When he comes back, this age will be brought to a close. All our opportunities to make a difference or be different in or for eternity will be gone and gone forever. That's the other end of the bracket within which we live our lives, in which our lives are cast. One day he will come back and he'll bring this age to a close. Meanwhile, meanwhile, what? What are we to do? How are we to live? Well, to begin to answer that question, we have to go back to verse 6, which introduces the things we've been talking about. 
It's the last of the resurrection appearances where Jesus met with his disciples before he returns to the Father. And what struck me as I thought about it was how much of myself I see there in verse 6. But I don't just see me there. I see most Christians, at least Christians in the West, represented in this verse. I want you to listen and see if you can identify yourself in it. Then they, the disciples, gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Do you see yourself standing there with the disciples asking that question? Maybe a little explanation is needed. You see, the disciples were genuinely interested in the kingdom, just as we are. But there was something else going on here. The disciples were really in a roundabout way asking Jesus, are you going to make our lives here and now on this earth easy? Are you going to make them good? Are you going to take away all of our problems? You know, many commentators think that disciples are still asking, are you going to get rid of our Roman overlords? You see, they wanted the kingdom right now. And we're like the disciples, aren't we? I mean, they love Jesus. We do too. <laughs> I mean, we really do love him. But aren't we always hoping and praying for that, for a good life here and now on this earth? And I'm not even saying it's wrong. I'm not even inferring that it is. But I, what I will say right now is that ought not to be the focus of our lives. We'll see that we're called to something more and something greater. And while we might focus on this life, Jesus has a different vision for us. His response to, to their question is fascinating to me. I don't see it at all as a rebuke. I don't think that's what's happening here because I believe he understands. He knows what we long for. He, he knows how we can quail at the thought of tri tribulation. After all, he went through Gethsemane, didn't he? Instead of a rebuke, he expands the disciples' understanding. He helps them to look beyond their times, just as he looked beyond the cross to the joy set before him while scorning any shame associated with his death. And in doing this, he challenged them to do what he did, to trust the Father. This is what he says in verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the dates the Father is set by his own authority. He's telling his followers, the disciples back then and us today, that one day his kingdom will come. But we can't even know the when of it. Do you see how that challenges us to trust him, to have faith in him and his wisdom and his timing and his will? To trust that he will bring about his kingdom and that we're going to be a part of it no matter what happens in between. You know, most of us here, we don't know what lies ahead. Peter knew that he was going to die somehow for Christ, and probably the other disciples eventually thought the same, and every one of them did, in fact, die for their faith except for John. Some people in our day know that the end is near because the doctors have told them so. 
But most of us just don't know. We don't know what lies ahead of us. Every day is a new day with new challenges and new threats and new fears and new hopes and dreams. And the only way to navigate this life is to trust God, who not only knows what will happen, but has a plan for it all. And again, in the meanwhile, if we accept that we have to trust our God, if we, if we hope to successfully way, navigate our way through this life, in the meanwhile, what then? How are we to live? What does God want from us? And of course, there's a number of ways we could answer that question, right ways. Well, we ought to love God. We ought to love our neighbor. We should be holy. We should walk by faith. But in this context, Jesus turns his thoughts, our thoughts, to the Great Commission, which we read at the, as our scripture reading this morning. And here he says it again using different words in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says to us, you can't know what the future holds. You don't know in what ways you might suffer or if you will really suffer at all. You don't know the day of your death or if I'll come before you die. You can and you should pray, but you must still trust God. But in the meanwhile, you're to be his witnesses. Your witness begins at home first. But it doesn't stop there, and it may indeed take you to the very ends of the earth. Or it may be that a kind of invisible line could be drawn from you, and your direct impact on certain people who then impact others still until that line encircles the whole globe. We just cannot know the end and the power of our witness. And I'm not being dramatic here. I know that a great commission was given to the church, but we, each of us, you and me, we are the church. The great commission is given to each one of us to fulfill as God has gifted and called us to. Now, I know some of you uh, are um, uncomfortable right now. I know some of you had the Moses excuse, uh, and you've been deployed it often, haven't you? You know what the Moses excuse is? It's when you think in your heart, or show by your actions, or say with your mouth, Lord, send someone else. I'm not a good talker. I don't know enough. What if I can't answer the questions? I'm just plain afraid. That's the Moses excuse. Let me ask you, how's that working out for you? Not so good, right? I thought so. Didn't work for Moses either. (laughs) He was sent anyway. And to be sure, it won't work for anyone else. As with his gifts, his calling does not change. So if you've employed the Moses excuse in the past, I've got some good news for you today. Witnessing for Christ is more than just the things we say. It's more than just words. In fact, words alone are not enough. The words which we speak must be spoken in love, and that's where we start. And if we start there, 
by loving other people, then the words will come, the right words at the right time. For they will come from our heart and they'll go straight to the heart of the one we're purposing to love. And before we ever even speak, we can open our homes to those on the outside. We can eat together and listen and share and love. That's what the early disciples did. That's what they did in this very book of Acts that we're studying. We're going to talk more about that on a future Sunday. And everyone begins to be a witness long before they ever say any direct, anything directly about the gospel. A life well lived is a powerful argument for the truth of the cross. So we're to be witnesses for Jesus. We're to show and declare what he has done in us and for us. And if you're sitting there thinking now, I want to do that. I, I want to be his witness because of all that he's done for me. Even though I feel so adequate, I want to do it. I have more good news for you. You're not in this alone. Jesus told the disciples that the Holy Spirit would empower them so that they could be his witnesses. Verse 8 again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. So one direct result of being filled with the Spirit is that you will be witnesses for Jesus, or at least you have the opportunity to do it. If you know Christ, the Spirit already lives in you. The Spirit was given to us to enable us to live the Christian life, which is our witness. Just as Jesus sent the Son to take away our sins because we could not save ourselves, so it is every bit as much His will for you and I to live the Christian life the only way we can, in the power of the Spirit. We don't have to wonder if God will empower us. He told us He would. We may not see it or feel it, but if we obey, if we love, and if we go in love, we can trust him to go before us. We don't have to wonder if God wants us to do it. He's already commanded us to go, but not alone. We don't go alone, never. We don't go in our own strength nor in our own will. We go with God in the strength of his spirit, walking in his will. That's what we're to do in the meanwhile. It's what shapes and defines the dash between the tombstone dates. We're to be God's witnesses, not just those who speak the right words, but it's those who speak in love and the power of the Holy Spirit in loving obedience to our Savior and our God. Now, I want to close our time together by looking at one other question in our passage the one asked of the disciples by the angels at the beginning of verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Well, of course they do look, right? But now Jesus is hidden from their sight. So what next? The implication is clear, isn't it? The angels are pointing out there's work to be done. They're asking, why are you standing around for? What are you waiting for? Jesus is coming back. It's time to get busy. For them, they had to wait for the baptism of the Spirit, but while they waited, they prayed. But we don't have to wait. The baptism of the Spirit's already happened. And we ought to pray, yes. But we are witnesses. 
We are witnesses of the greatest truth in all the universe, something which you and I have personally partaken of if we know Christ. That our sins have been forgiven. That we have eternal life. That the Spirit of God lives in us and we know God as our Father. Is that true of you? Well, if it is, then you need, and I need, to be about the business of the kingdom, to fill in our dash for the glory of God. Would you pray with me, please? Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you, Lord, that when we were lost and dead in our sin, without hope in this world and right objects of wrath, being able to do nothing for ourselves, you sent your Son who took our sins away. And Lord, if that weren't enough, you put your Spirit inside of us to enable us to live this life you've called us. And you promise never to leave us, never to forsake us, to always continue that good work you've begun in us until that day when we're in your presence and we're made complete and whole. In the meanwhile, Lord, help us to live for you, to honor you. Help us to be your witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.